I'm Jay Hughes, producer of Change Surfer Radio, and for the next half hour, I'll be your guide to a sexy high-tech vision of a radically democratic future. Brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Welcome to Change Surfer Radio. I'm talking today with David Kopsel. He has been a guest on this program before. We talked about his book, Who Owns You? The Corporate Gold Rush to Patent Your Genes. David is a prolific author, philosopher, attorney, educator. He currently lives in Holland and teaches at the Delft University of Technology. And we're going to talk today about his latest, well, uh, two books back, actually, three books back, maybe. We won't get to those for a while. But uh, Innovation and Nanotechnology, Converging Technologies and the End of Intellectual Property. You, You haven't published, uh, you're working on a movie. That's what I'm confused about, right? You're working on a movie now? Well, yeah, we're, we're do, finishing up a documentary on Who Owns You. Uh, a director named Taylor Roche and I are, uh, are finishing that up. But you're also working on a movie about a guy, a utopian, who got put away in prison in the States? Yeah, that's a, that's a long-term project. I'm, I'm trying to get a contract for a book on that that uh, I will uh, write in conjunction with the movie. I've filmed the interviews, but I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't finished editing it because I want the book out first. Okay, so the but you have also published in between this book on nano and IP a book about philosophy and popular culture, and so we'll hope hopefully we'll get a copy of that and we'll have a chat about that one as well. But let's talk about yeah, that'd be great. Let's talk about nano and IP today. Um, sure. Let, explain you you have bought into and as have I. I'm not uh, disparaging it, but a lot of people haven't. You've bought into the notion that there is a trajectory of nanotechnological innovation that's going to lead to um, robust molecular manufacturing. So could you break that down for those in the audience, those three or four in the audience who don't know what we're talking about? Sure. Well, you know, like perhaps many of us who dream of this sort of future, uh, we've seen it in science fiction. So uh, everybody who's seen Star Trek and the replicators in Star Trek is seeing uh, you know, a, a preconception of what it ought to look like, right? So someday in the future, we'll be able to dial up objects at will. Um, and it's not just science fiction in the sense that there are people who are actively working on this. There are research programs that are actively working on it. There's tremendous scientific hurdles to overcome yet, but I believe that those scientific hurdles are, um, are not uh, natural laws uh, that, can't, uh, that are in the way, but rather um, techn- technological hurdles that will be overcome. And the dream of uh, molecular nanotechnology is that eventually we'll have self-assembling robots or some other way to, to create objects uh, as we need them. And, of course, the trajectory is coming in two directions, and I note in my book, and this is why I call them nanowares, um, one trajectory is from the bottom up, this sort of molecular nanotechnology, very highly um, difficult path of uh, making things from the molecular level on up. Um, and the second trajectory is is also very interesting, and it's this the notion of... Um, uh, microfabrication or fabrication 
um, uh, through things like 3D printing and other sorts of devices that that are not building things at the molecular level, but are creating objects uh, at the macro level, um, but in a, basically revolutionizing our manufacturing process. Uh, it seems to me that there's another trajectory, which is the synthetic biology direct, uh, trajectory, and that is, synth- yeah. you know, um, uh, microorganisms are functioning nanotechnology that's all around us that we depend on, we're made up of, and so if we can figure out how to do some of the things they do, then, it, then it, yeah. we can figure out how to do nanotech. Yeah, absolutely. I talk about synthetic biology as well, but I think that it, I don't, I, I'm not convinced it's not nanotechnology uh, in biological media. So I don't really distinguish the two significantly. Now, another thing that kind of blurs uh, at the lines here is the notion that if we figure out how to do some of these nanotech things and fab lab things, we're really talking about the the, the full um, uh, maturation of an information economy because what these things would really be is patterns that we could then share, copy with the, and share and, and do manufacturing at will anywhere in the world. Precisely. And this is going to solve all sorts of wonderful things. For instance, the environmental impact of shipping things around the world is tremendous. And we use a lot of our infrastructure just moving items around the world. Um, well, that's very inefficient, and uh, given our concerns about the environment and uh, dwindling uh, resources, we ought to uh, look towards distributing uh, objects the way we do information now. Uh, send the pattern to somewhere where the thing is needed and print out the object or build it from uh, mole- molecules on up. That's, that's, that's really uh, sort of necessary if we're going to curb some of the harms that are um, likely to occur if we don't uh, scale back our energy uh, usage. I think it's kind of fascinating that over the last 10 years, when, when the National Nanotechnology Initiative got initiated under the Clinton administration, and um, Drexlerites were very excited that finally some money was going to go into the direction of developing molecular manufacturing kind of tools. And it mostly went to uh, nanomaterials research. And the nanomaterials researchers, academic and corporate, uh, really dismissed and poo-pooed and shut out uh, people who were talking about um, molecular machines. But now, uh, the as you say, there's this uh, growing trajectory. I mean, it, it reminds me, yesterday I was talking to a journalist who was interested in the notion of, uh, of nanomedicine. And I said, you know, well, any day you can read in the, in the media about progress towards nanomedicine. And in fact, a couple hours later, a woman released, um, you know, evidence that she had put uh, a small nanorobot inside the bloodstream of a patient and it was crawling around identifying things, you know. So you, know, you just ha- if you think that, that science is on an accelerating course, as, you know, the Kurzweil and other people have said, um, and even if it's not, if it's just linear, we're, we seem to be getting there linearly. But if you think it's an accelerating course, this stuff's going to come pretty quickly. Yeah, and uh, I think, so I became most interested when I was writing this book in, in the sort of grassroots efforts that are going on. And I talk about the fab labs and I talk about um, the RepRap um, and other sort of desktop publishing uh, 3D, I mean, desktop 3D printing uh, tools, which I think are also, if you 
they're converging uh, at a perhaps a, as fast a rate as the um, molecular nanotechnology is. So I, I'm not sure who's going to get there first, or maybe all these technologies will literally converge in some sort of um, future where we're able to manufacture anything wherever we wish. Now, in my old-fashioned Marxist language, what your book is about, this book, Innovation and Nanotechnology, is about the, um, the way in which the development of the means of production will break the bonds of the relations of production. In other words, we have this old-fashioned intellectual property regime, capitalist order, that tries to um, encourage people to innovate and sell their wares and to determine who has access to what, uh, but that these kinds of technologies you're suggesting are going to turn all that on its head and that we're going to have to come up with new models for doing all of that. Yeah, precisely. But I think those models are also in in the works as well. So there's there's... What you describe politically is is absolutely correct. So the IP model is quite well adapted to a sort of industrial, uh, large-scale production model. If you want to capitalize your production, uh, you got to get the state to grant you a monopoly uh, while you're raising the capital to build your widget. Um, if you do that without the state's uh, monopoly protection through patent, uh, then you risk uh, actually having to compete in the marketplace, um, and you're likely to lose your um, your uh, funders uh, because they're not they have no guarantee that they're going to succeed. So this model is breaking down as that old industrial model uh, breaks down. So I, I think um, one of the things I, I, I try to get across is I'm not making a normative claim here. I'm describing a, an, an inevitable historical process. So I suppose your invocation of Marx is, is apt. <laughs> Although you don't consider yourself a Marxist. Not at all, no. I, I think of myself as a techno-anarchist. Yeah. Now, uh, okay, so let's start with this notion that um, IP in the design of things is somehow different from IP anywhere else. Sure. If, if, if We've had CAD CAM for a long time, computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing. There must be patterns in CAD CAM uh, that I don't know how CAD CAM works, but there must be computer programs that, you know, people design something and then they save it as a file. And, and I presume that that's intellectual property that's, that's, that can be copyrighted. Why, you know, it, it, why didn't that uh, pose the same kind of dilemma? Why do you think that these new kinds of patterns for how to make a, uh, a chair out of nano goo are going to threaten things in ways that previous industrial technologies didn't? I'm very glad you asked that because uh, now I can talk a little bit about how I entered this topic about 15 years ago, if you don't mind. Um, when I was first, when I first became interested in problems relating to philosophy and intellectual property, I, I started with the issue of software. So my first book on the ontology of cyberspace was about intellectual property and software. And I, I, at the time, I thought like you just described that somehow um, you know, there were designs that are uh, in I don't know pictures or words or prose, et cetera, or software. There are physical things in the real world, and, and these are two distinct things, and they're protected one on the one hand as, uh, by copyright, which would be, would be what would protect the a design in CAD CAM. 
Um, and on the other hand, when it's a, some sort of machine uh, protected by patent. But I, my conclusion in, in that first book was that the distinction between these two things is suspect, that really what we're talking about in either uh, some sort of digital medium or physical medium is an expression, the, the making manifest of some idea in some medium. And I think that, uh, and software posed a real legal problem because it was the first thing to get both copyright and patent protection. So your CAD-CAM example is great because if you could argue that it was a written work or some other sort of aesthetic work, then you would be able to get a copyright. But you and I also know that when software is instantiated in a computer, it is also what? It's a machine. So also software was uh, deemed patentable. but I think neither that, first of all, this revealed a fundamental problem with intellectual property law itself. Um, and it's a problem that I then trace through uh, genes and the patenting of genes, and now realize has something to do uh, with uh, our misconceptions about, um, about types of expression. Uh, and software is just an example. Nanotechnology, um, if we're going to realize it in the sort of science fiction scenarios you and I have been talking about, is going to mean we're going to literally be disseminating not the physical objects, which would be, say, patentable, but the, the types, the descriptions of those, um, or the universals, for instance. And there is no adequate way uh, to protect the universal. In fact, you're not supposed to be able to uh, patent or, or copyright a universal. But it's precisely those types that we want to encourage innovation in. Well, this distinction between the universal and the particular seems to be pretty important. So um, you're saying that if I uh, write down a description of here's what a chair is, that I wouldn't be able to patent that. I would send it to the U.S. Patent Office. They'd say, well, I'm um, sorry, that's people have been using chairs for thousands of years. You're, you're not coming up with anything new. But if I write down all the specs on an Aeron chair, which seems to be a pretty specific kind of object, I could probably get a patent on that. So, um, and what you would be pushing out of one of these uh, nano fab labs at some point in the future isn't going to be chair. It's going to be an Aeron chair or this chair or that chair. So why isn't that particular design uh, going to be intellectual property that's going to be copyrighted? Well, because the patent is supposed to give you a protection and not the type, but in um, every instance, that, of, that is manufactured or reproduced of that type. Okay, so let's take your, was it Aeron chair? Yeah, Aeron's a, uh, the high-end kind of chair. Okay, yeah, no, I don't, I just sit on Ikea stuff here. So. You can get um, a patent on your Aeron chair if it's specifically, you know, if it meets all the criteria, if it's new and non-obvious, et cetera, um, and useful. But that gives you a monopoly on reproductions of that particular chair. Now, what's going to happen when we disseminate in our um, nanotech uh, uh, future, um, not the chairs themselves, but uh, the full software specs so that anybody can create it when they, where they want to create it? Well, you're going to need to either tack on some new form of 
license so that anybody who receives that spec now can become a licensed manufacturer of that chair. Or, as I suggest, we'll just do away with all that because no, we no longer have the, the infrastructural necessity or the capital is, you know, we don't need to capitalize the same way we do for the development of the first chair or, or for production of, of tens of thousands of chairs. So why not streamline the whole thing? Just skip past the IP uh, and start disseminating the types, come up with a market for the types. Okay, so so you're saying that because it's going to be so much uh, cheaper for the Aeron company, they wouldn't have to make the chair, um, and so they don't have to, uh, you know, the Aeron company right now loses money. If someone makes a knockoff Aeron chair, they're making Aeron chairs, they have this huge factory, and it's going to go bust if someone makes a knockoff. But if they just sold the, the uh, instructions on how to make the Aeron chair, that would be a lot cheaper, and they could almost give those away. So that's kind of like dress patterns, right? Because you don't know when you know, people who, make, who buy dress patterns are going to make the, the dress themselves, and they're right. relatively cheap. They're like a buck. But it's still something. You still have to pay something for it. You do. And, and the same is true for sheet music as well. Uh, and... There was a time in the United States when there was no protection um, for, for instance, player piano rolls uh, because they were not uh, human readable. Um, but there were player pianos that uh, needed the rolls, and people were selling um, player piano roll um, rolls, uh, and people were knocking them off too. But once you've made the first one, right, you've hired the pianist to um, uh, record the first roll making extra copies of that becomes relatively simple. And the same will be true, as you say, the same is true with dress patterns, et cetera. I think, so my, my concern is that this old method of innovation is, is sort of literally dying. Now there's still some companies that are you know, innovating importantly, like Apple and, and others, um, through holding on to their IP jealously. But there's other companies that are able to come by with very little capital um, and significant innovation and enter the marketplace more cheaply um, and quickly uh, by disregarding it. And many of those people are embracing sort of um, open source 3D desktop fabrication model uh, that I'm, I'm saying is going to converge with molecular nanotechnology. So, but there would still be an intellect. There would still be an interest in protecting intellectual property. It'd just be a lot cheaper. I'm not sure if there there would be because, okay. So some people, yeah, they they may always want the state to protect them in the marketplace. Um, but I think others are who will profit um, by ignoring that system and are doing so by ignoring that system are uh, setting an example of why we may not wish to continue to um, fund what I call the intellectual property industrial complex. So the, the rise of the pirate parties and, and all of this, all the fight back against intellectual property overreach is a sign that it's going to be a lot harder in the future. I think so, yeah. And the fact that people who are real market players are, are kind of fed up with the system as well. So a pirate bay, just to, parenthetically, pirate bay in uh, what, Sweden or Finland someplace? 
Um, they yep. re- they recently opened a section of their website for 3D designs, which got the hearts aflutter of all the futurists because <laughs> they mm-hmm. thought this is the the coming of what you're talking about that we're going to start sharing. And my son just sent me yesterday a link to a website that uh, distributes. Um, 30 gigabytes of information about how to make uh, open source, uh, well, open source instructions on how to make all kinds of things, and it's intended for the uh, appropriate technology developing world. And so, for like you know, 50 cents, you can get access to you know everything to build an entire village uh, from this website. Right. And you can imagine that in the future that would include the the 3D designs. Um, and I yep. know I know a guy who was actually up in Afghanistan with a, a, a fab lab trying to uh, teach Afghani's um, how to use these fab labs up in the mountains. So it's already yeah. It should be noted that Gershenfeld is uh, he's interested in full scale molecular nanotechnology. Gershenfeld is the guy behind the fab lab concept. Uh, so his his idea of building you know the the complete tool set for building anything uh, cheaply and open you know open source uh, is part of is literally part of the same movement that's behind molecular nanotechnology and I, I think there are there are other great examples so there's I think it's called Shapeways I mentioned in the, in my book uh, also it's a, a clearinghouse for 3D designs. Uh, for um, printing on your you know, homemade uh, 3D printer, um, and and there's our Arduino, which is a great um, uh, circuit board that's open source uh, that can be used for um, uh, in various controllers. There's there's a great book out there you can find in Torrance, uh, uh, 30 uh, mad scientist uh, tricks for the Arduino and. Other sorts of uh, um, innovations like that are, are all part of the same trend. Let's talk about two dystopian downsides. One you address in the book is um, people making bad stuff. So you distribute this, people start making nano heroin and nano weapons and nano goo, and uh, there's all kinds of problems with, with that scenario. So what, what about a, a regime that includes the kinds of controls on what people can make um, but is also right. open source in the way that you hope for. Well, there's also so. So I, I think that's a problem of intelligence. You always want to have a good uh, some some way to track uh, precursors and other sorts of things that are likely to be used in a weapon. Um, and there are many good recommendations now coming out of research groups and security about how how you can look for these precursors. And in synthetic biology, for instance, if somebody orders uh, the right combination of, um, you know, little genetic uh, um, snippets, uh, then it puts up a red flag, so you you know if they're trying to manufacture smallpox, etc. I think, though, that my general view about people wanting to do bad things is that if you try to regulate too much, uh, you just push criminals underground, you make them harder to track, and you uh, make it harder for the community of good people to self-police. I live in the Netherlands where uh, I can see a graphic example of that in the drug trade, which here uh, doesn't result in people dead on the streets um, because it is largely legalized or regulated uh, in some appropriate way rather than criminalized. The other dystopian scenario is the notion that we're already uh, seeing 
the disappearance of jobs, the kind of final fruition of the Luddite anxiety about automation uh, and robotics combined with globalization, um, eliminating uh, lots of sectors of employment and not creating new sectors of employment. If you've seen um, Cory Doctorow's novel, Makers, or I'm sure you've thought about this otherwise, um, one of the things that he explores in there is that Precisely this kind of lab fab and widely distributed access to, uh, to uh, nano designs and things like that will disintermediate the economy in ways that right. will, uh, again, eliminate all swaths of employment and make it very difficult to create new kinds of employment. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, it's not only going to turn property relations on its head, but it's also going to uh, change the nature of work and leisure and income and, uh, and probably expand the necessity for social provision. We may go through a stage where that's true, um, but uh, again, uh, this should so go back to your marks and uh, do we prefer to have um, workers who are just cogs in, the, in some industrial methods of production, or do we want to unleash people's creative abilities? I think that it's the latter uh, that we should prefer, and it is uh, it will be a tough transition, no doubt, and I, I think I'm. I mentioned that in the book as well, that there's going to be, uh, you know, more endemic unemployment as manufacturing disappears as we know it. But as we all become makers, as we all become creators, um, we're going to learn new skills and we're going to unleash our creative potentials, I think, in ways that are kind of exciting. You know, um, I read a, a friend of mine recently sent me uh, an article because he knows I, I make my own beer uh, on beer making and the do-it-yourself evolution in molecular nanotechnology. So a lot of people who are involved in the science are also DIYers uh, at home uh, and recognize that uh, the future is going to be one in which there's more um, decentralized production of all sorts of things. And actually, it can be kind of interesting and creative and fun. Well, I just saw a paper yesterday that the the yeast used in beer making and the equipment used in beer making has turned out to be an ideal medium for synthetic biology production, that they were able to cook up all kinds yeah. of things doing, doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, a, it's a great little creature. Yeah, yeah. It'd be beer as the source of convergence between all these things. <laughs> Well, I'm in favor of that, yeah. yeah. Okay, quickly, tell us about uh, what our taste for this next book that you wrote about uh, philosophy and uh, popular culture so that we can think about uh, having well, it as well. Um, the next book uh, will be out this summer. It's uh, Breaking Bad and Philosophy. So it's one of the open court um, popular culture and philosophy um, books uh, that a friend of mine, Bill Irwin, uh, started uh, uh, quite a while back. Um, and we're looking at the television show Breaking Bad, which has a lot to teach us about ethics. And, and it's, a, it's another uh, desktop fab uh, example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, it's a, it's another DIY, uh, uh, sort of in the extreme. Um, but I, I think it, I, wor- I worked on it with uh, Rob Arp, who has edited quite a number of these books, and we have about twenty um, uh, contributors who have uh, who've um, contributed papers from all across the philosophical spectrum. 
Well, that sounds fun. I'm looking forward to that. We, my son and I just watched the first episode last week, so we'll we'll uh, catch up. Um, well, okay. this has been great, David. Um, keep up the good work. We've been speaking to David Kopsel. He's written Innovation and Nanotechnology, Converging Technologies and the End of Intellectual Property, which is available also as a free download, which is appropriate. But I urge you to buy the book from Bloomsbury as well. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, James. You've been listening to Change Surfer Radio, a sexy high-tech vision of a radically democratic future. Brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and produced at WRTC Hartford at Trinity College and WHUS Stores at the University of Connecticut. I'm the host and producer of Change Surfer Radio and the executive director of the IEET, Jay Hughes. If you want to learn more about the techno-progressive perspective of Change Surfer Radio and the IEET, or you want to share your thoughts about our programs, email us at director at IEET.org. Also at IEET.org, you can subscribe to a weekly podcast of Change Surfer Radio and listen to or download all of our shows since 1998, thanks to archive.org and the AIMFOS Radio Project. Our intro and outro music were composed and recorded by IEET fellow Ricardo Campa. So educate, agitate, and organize. And I hope to meet you in a sexy high-tech and radically democratic future.